Hello, and welcome to the Area Video Podcast Live 2019. Thank you so much for coming out. We're off to an amazing start. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, yeah, so obviously this is our second year doing this. Uh, we've got a little bit more time, uh, which is great. So we've got uh, some extra people. We've got the numbers. Got to get yeah. those numbers up. Are we going to do the proper intro? Oh, really? Yes. Okay. Like, like we're recording it? Yeah. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Arrow Video Podcast with Sam and Dan. My name is Dan Martin, special effects artist and podcaster, and I am joined, as ever, by my beautiful co-host... Sam Ashurst, and I'm a, a director, I'm a writer, and I'm on one hour sleep, so <laughs> we're going to get interesting today, I think. <laughs> um, let's get straight to it. We've got lots of lovely people to talk to. We do. Um, our first guest um, is the fantastic Ant Timpson. Uh, if you don't mind joining us, uh, thank you so much. Hello, hello. Yeah, got to do that. These guys can hear you, but it's for the people at home. Hello, Hi. people at home. <laughs> <laughs> it's my first podcast, can't you tell? It's not your first podcast. It is. Really? Is it really? Yeah. yeah. That's astonishing. Well, there you go. A lovely, a lovely hour exclusive. First film at 50, first podcast. It's a, it's a whole new year for me. That's amazing. So, yeah, in the, in the run-up to this, Sam and I were talking about like a theme for the interview. Uh, interviews and uh, and one of the things we wanted to talk about really with everyone was about the transition from someone who was a film fan into being a filmmaker and the various paths that people take now obviously you know everyone here and, and lots of people listening at home have seen loads and loads of films you've produced over the years uh, this is uh, Come to Daddy uh, your first feature it's 23 years since you did your short thank you for reminding me <laughs> <laughs> yeah do you want to do you want to tell people about the decision to to Jeez. jump the fence <clears throat> look it was really i don't want to get into the whole um behind the scenes of uh the tragedy that caused me to jump back into filmmaking but it was really like a, a whole epiphany of life is short and it was like what the hell am i doing i started off making shorts and and then had this crazy deviation uh and just was supporting other filmmakers and getting lots of reward from doing that as well but suddenly thinking like, well, hey, what about, I was that guy as well, you know, so it's like maybe I should support myself and focus on getting something out, so that's where it all switched gears for me and became like a real sort of impetus. Since, I, you know, if you're on Facebook or social media, it's a real wake-up call to get things pumping in your life because it looks like every friend is getting sick or someone's dropping dead every week, so it's kind of like there's an immediacy to like, yeah, life's short, let's get going. Yeah. What a grim start to, <laughs> to Saturday morning. Here we go. Did everyone did everyone see the film? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So it's a comedy. Like it's uh, it's actually quite accessible. It's not as as dour as maybe. No. It's yeah. I mean it's I mean I think it's a dark comedy. Yeah. Yeah. Gallows humour with some sort of silliness as well mixed in. So you the the idea was a personal one to you, uh, and you took it to the writer and he produced a, he produced the script for you uh, at the Q and A last night. Night before last, good God. <laughs> uh, you were saying that when it first came back, it wasn't quite what you'd expected to receive. Well, yeah, I think we might have even had a little bit of a falling out because I was quite brutal in the initial feedback because it was quite a, like a shock to me of like how far he had gone in, in a different sort of area from what um, this very personal thing was. And so it took me a little while to get over that and then we finally like started talking about where to go and maybe I think... I might have said let's maybe let's degrease it a little bit. <laughs> it was my mind was still fresh with working with them on uh, the Greasy Strangler, and then there was a lot of sort of excessive stuff that we sort of shaped and and talked about, and maybe toning down. And 
um, yeah, it was just a really, ended up being a really awesome collaboration, but we definitely went through all sorts of um, trials and tribulations to get to the end result, but yeah, and we're, but it obviously worked out because we're working on another one together. Oh, that's amazing. It's a, it's a, I really love the film. Thank you. It's fantastic. Uh, I, t- I, I want to talk to you about the ending, but I can't talk to you about the ending because we're recording this and it's going to go out. So even though the people here have seen it, the people yeah, listening. Yeah, it ends. Yeah, so there's an, there's an ending. <laughs> uh, it's got quite a, quite a touching end. And after quite a raucous, uh, like over-the-top film, to be able to shift yeah. seamlessly into that, that, that ending uh, is quite nice. Was that, uh, was that a, a tonal shift that took like finding in the edit, or was that exactly as you envisioned it? No, it was pretty much as envisioned, and, and it was really, there was a couple of crucial shots that I, I really wanted to get in that meant a lot, but it was like how we could get there after all that insanity very quickly. And so I think for some people, because they've either gone through similar things like unanswered questions with their parents and before going, and so the surprising thing for me is that those people do actually get affected by it on just that level that they've still got shit to work out with their parents. I mean, it, that a lot of us have. So um, that was that gets them to that point a lot easier than other people who probably have still got a wonderful relationship and everything's rosy. They don't get that it doesn't hit them like that. So that leap from where it goes from, you know, crazy genre insanity down to like trying to get to some really emotional heft, it might not succeed as well for them. But so it's really dependent on on where those people's headspace are at with their, with their daddy issues, <laughs> or mummy issues. There's some, yeah, there's some pretty great just like tonal transitions throughout. Uh, there's a moment for Elijah, a little after the midpoint, where he sort of jumps off the deep end a little bit as far as committing to yeah. where the film's going, which is a great, whoa. <laughs> He's, I mean, he was, I think that's why he was a big fan of jumping on board because it was quite a challenge for him, not just being, he's been in films like uh, Open Windows and Grand Piano where he is pretty much in frame the entire time. So he's, it wasn't that challenge, it was the challenge of what he has to go through in the film and try to keep it all kind of consistent and seamless, which is where he, I was super lucky having uh, an actor of that caliber because he's just very aware, because you shoot out a sequence completely and everything, he was very aware of how he needed to bridge everything throughout the entire film, which was a huge bonus for me as a first time freaking out filmmaker. <laughs> on set with Stephen McHattie eyeballing me every second <laughs> um, who was the first cast you attached to it? well Elijah was the first person who read it oh so wow it was written with him and Toby and I were laughing about like um, I'll send a photo of Skrillex with the script to Elijah <laughs> and um, he was like I love the script but fuck off to Skrillex and uh, which was a DJ who's got a very particular look and um, but it was more of a like we just wanted you know, I wanted to brief him like how pushed it was going to be and what it, we needed him to to fit that entitled LA sort of man-child persona. And he was just, yeah, it was game from the start. So that point, once he was in, uh, which was straight after we were happy with the script, it was all guns blazing, really. That's awesome. Uh, yeah, you managed to make a character who in real life I would probably not want to hang around with. <laughs> well, anyone quite, in the quite, film mainly. Yeah. yeah, but but Elijah's, he's very sympathetic because, you know, as much as his character is problematic, uh, like flawed, you see this need for him to make this emotional connection yeah. with his estranged father. And that's, a, you know, you really, really champion that for him. Absolutely. Like he's a real, you know, there's a real sort of honesty and purity to his, to that performance of like him reaching out and, and, and just finding that sort of, complete stone wall coming back at him is it's like that's the minute the audience sort of clicks and they want to go with the ride for him and see how he goes uh it's also got one of my favorite let's get rid of the mobile phone 
moments. God, I just saw a film the other day that had, it was just constant use of mobile phones. So we talked about like, let's just get rid of, like have no guns and get rid of every mobile phone. Just like all these things that are now so contrived in their use of modern cinema. It was just so like liberating to say, let's just even make a joke about it. Like get them out, get them out of the narrative as fast as possible. Yeah. Obviously your time as a producer has prepared you well for, for, for moving into directing. You, you know a lot of very talented people. Did you, I mean, it, I don't know quite how to phrase this. It's a, it's a great script and it does its own work. Did you find that you ever had to be like, uh, come on now, it's time for you to do me a favour? Or was it just everyone just fell in line? <laughs> um, <laughs> well, no, it was really, because it was a three-way co-production, it was kind of Canadian-led for a lot of the time before. Uh, and Sorry, US-led initially with an investor who came on board really early. And then it went to Canada and then New Zealand came on as well. So there was like various um, sort of ways the project got elevated. Um, and so I didn't really have like my own team from New Zealand that I've been working with. We ended up flying up Kiwis that I didn't really know. They'd all just come off mortal engines and were like, um, I think, desperate <laughs> for, for a, something a little bit less, um, you know, enormous to work on. And it was kind of like summer camp for them because it was um, shitty weather in New Zealand. They came up and it was summer in Tofino, this place on Vancouver Island. So it was like we all just sort of gelled. And, but I only really knew a couple of people um, on the project, so I was sort of in the deep end. And so I initially just reached out and formed really tight bonds with some of the HODs early on when we spent a lot of time in pre-prod, um, just hanging out, bonding, living really near the location and just and then I was just firing feedback to the writer saying this is what the whole geography of the whole area looks like here's the schematics and so once yeah I just felt like a lot more comfortable when I was alone in New Zealand isolated by myself that's when the the fears started and so but the minute you get on surrounded by people who are all sort of committed to the cause it's you, your confidence levels just shoot up I, I mean I had like yeah, 30 odd years of ring rust so <laughs> there's a little bit to shake off yeah, it's it's great. Uh, the you talked about sent, like the geography of the space. It's an amazing location that you found. How much of that is as the location was? Because there's some interesting elements to the, the the physical space. Yeah. That play into the story. Was that? It's all. I mean, it's all pretty much real. I mean, it's all real. It's like a father and son built the house. But what we hide is that there's a huge hotel that's kind of just out of frame always. Uh, and also all the weddings that were taking place right next to the <laughs> location, which was fun for a shoot. Um, so, yeah, we just sort of manufacture it. So the way it's all sort of contained, it looks like there's only a certain way to get to this place that's very nice, just to, to keep him, like, unable to basically leave really easily. Um, so, yeah, I just fell in love with it. It just, it just fit. It was this, the furthest out sort of house on a rocky outcrop on this entire island, which is the size of, like, New Zealand, South Island. It's massive. So it was just like, it has to be this house, and we ended up holding it for six months, which is super tough in the real world to like convince families to like, we, yeah, can you just wow. please keep holding this place. They hadn't, it had never been used for any photo shoots or filming before. So really? It looks like we a, super lucky. a mini rural Zabriskie Point. It absolutely is, yeah. <laughs> it's just incredible. Sam, do you want to... Yeah, I'm not just like I'm not just ig ig ignoring you. We're, we're taking. I, I'm doing the next one. Just yeah, just no, so we're, 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 the, <laughs> the plan was to sort of alternate, but I I realised that I I wanted if Sam had anything. Um, well, uh, I, I I know you sort of touched on it, but the the origin of the film I I do find very moving. Um, if you could talk a little bit about oh. that, sure. So. 
yeah, my dad died suddenly in front of me, like literally in front of me, um, and it was quite traumatic. And so his partner at the time thought it would be a really good um, idea for him to be embalmed by her ex-husband, which is extra weirdness on top of everything, uh, and for the body to come back and for the siblings to sort of hang out and spend time with his corpse for five days. Very natural thing. Uh, <laughs> in a lot of cultures, and um, it, it turned out to be a really weird, beautiful, cathartic experience, but also kind of deeply troubling and surreal, and I was there most nights by myself, and as you do, you go down and supposedly have these conversations with your dear, dear dad that all these things that you wanted to get off your chest when you're alive, but you just stare at this flesh vehicle that completely doesn't feel like your father anymore and you just nothing comes out and you're just like uh you know i'm never going to get these things answered and so from all that and then during the day like these strangers would would turn up um family friends and relatives that i knew but also people i had no idea of who had this crazy history about my father that were sort of like richly detailed sort of stories of like things that i had no idea about going way back to when he was like a really early young young man and he was always very quiet about his past. Like he, he had quite a strange, not strange, just a very um, unusual um, childhood. And so later on, after all that happening, I was just starting to process and thought I'd be, I'd love to, I'd also like I'd love to make a film because I think I'm going to die. <laughs> Having just seen him drop dead, it's like I need, and I'd love to make something that he would love as well. And then so that was really thinking about fathers and sons, thinking about unanswered questions, thinking about dark pasts that come back to the sun, you know, to revisit the present day. And um, putting all that together as a sort of skeleton idea and sending it through to Toby, who obviously we'd worked with some Greasy Strangler with, and then that's where it all started taking off from there. That's beautiful, thank you. Yes, pleasure. Um, are you allowed to talk about what you're working on next with him? Well, it's just another, it's another wild idea that there's a connection both of us have got a connection. I, there was something that happened to me a long time ago that was really unusual <laughs> um, when I was a younger man. And so I sort of talked to Toby and then he had some things that happened to him. We, we've both got sort of weird pasts in certain ways. And uh, it's just been this ongoing collaboration of like the type of film that we don't think gets made anymore and that we wanted to investigate. And so it'll be something else that's kind of very unusual and hybrid in terms of where it slots into. I don't think it's going to fall into any easy category, but it's, I really, really think it's kind of, kind of cool. So we're getting, we've got a first draft, so basically it's early days. That's awesome. Thank you so much for being with us. For you guys, if you want to see it again, and uh, for those at home, Come to Daddy is out early 2020 from Signature Entertainment. Yes. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Oh, oh, God, yes. No, that's just me being unprofessional. No, uh, no, Anna's reminded me of something, so we're not going to let him go just yet. We sent out, uh, as we... Those of you who listen to the podcast regularly know that we recommend films based on what we've watched yes. and films that we uh, have seen recently. Last year, we started asking uh, the guests if they could recommend, A, a sort of a deep cut film that they don't think gets uh, talked about enough or seen enough, um, uh, and then also a, a favourite film from the Arrow canon as well. So, um, yes, yeah, sorry, thank you for preparing that and also reminding me. <laughs> I, am, I am garbage. I'm not going to hog extra time, but I just thought, No, no, you know, you're all good, man. I, I just I, spent yeah. five hours last night researching everything, but it's okay. <laughs>
Um, so a deep cut. Yeah. Okay, so my deep cut is this uh, film called Kiss the Girls Goodbye by a director called Lee Karim, and it's his only film. Uh, and it was a film that we found in Malaysia uh, in 1997, and at that stage, it hadn't, no one had heard about this film. For some reason, it was like a US indie shot for 14K that just popped up on a VCD in Malaysia, and we fell in love with it because it's, it's probably a film now that you'd get hung by the nearest rafter for championing, but it's a very nasty psychodrama um, about a guy played by Frankie Ray who's been in hundreds of bit roles in LA. He was, you know, before this film, he was homeless and broke, um, and then he got a, a break as an extra on Mambo Kings, and then finally he ends up as the lead role in this dirty, disgusting film where he kidnaps a woman um, because he's a really weird mum's boy who's got an overbearing mum, and he puts her in a secret room behind his closet and then feeds her heroin and then turns into the Stockholm Syndrome sort of thing where she starts needing him and then he gets bored and steals her roommate and grabs her and brings her back and introduces her into the mix and it just keeps escalating from there. But the performance from this guy is so terrifying and so real and so grimy that it's like uh, it's like a deranged taxi driver made on 10 bucks. It's pretty outstanding, so... That sounds That's astonishing. My Thank you. Um, and, uh, yeah, and your, your, your choice from the Arrow catalogue. Another highly problematic, dysfunctional family <laughs> movie, which is uh, Toys Are Not For Children, which is one of my favourite films that um, I fell in love with way back in the days of Sleazord Express, who was... I was a big fan of Bill Landis, the New York writer, and it was one of the films he recommended, and I saw it very early on, and it's... Uh, again, it's a it's a problematic film that you <laughs> wouldn't play very well today. But it's um, I love the themes, and it's one of these films that stars regional players, you know, really committed sort of local thesps that are supremely competent, but kind of slightly off when they when you see them in, in a film, um, and it just gives it this really sort of deep, very unusual sort of vibe to all the performances uh, and. Yeah, just it's one of those films that when you show people, they it feels like an after-school special that goes really wrong, very very quickly. Um, and I just love it. So it's toys enough for children. That's awesome. Thank you so much. Clap Amazing. again. Amazing. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much. You see, wasn't that good? Yes, it's my turn, isn't it? Good. I'm going to be quiet Hello, now. everybody. Um, thank you for coming. Thank you for being here. Uh, our next guest, uh, those of you who were at the podcast last year, uh, will remember Charlie Steeds because we pulled him down from the audience unexpectedly. But he is more prepared this time, and he has a film at Fright Fest this year. So, Charlie, please come and join me. Good morning. Hello. Um, I just did a weird northern accent, and I think my leg's <laughs> shutting down. But other than that, I think we're going to be fine. Um, how are you, Charlie? Yes, very good. Thank how you. are you enjoying Fright Fest so far? Very good. Saw Bliss last night. Loved it. So, yeah. Great. And uh, we are doing the, the film fan to filmmaker interview theme thing. And obviously, it hasn't been 23 years since your first short, because <laughs> you would have been... Two, yeah. um, but you have made a lot of films in a short space of time. Mm -hmm. uh, the latest is The Barge People, but uh -huh. I want to take you right back to the start. What was the first horror movie that made a significant impact on you? Uh, well, for a long, for the longest time, I was really scared of uh, all horror movies. Like I was, I was just such a scaredy cat of everything. Um, so even by like age twelve, 
I was just literally terrified of like adverts on the TV. If an advert came on for like the Grudge remake, that would like make me cry <laughs> with fear. I was that scared. Um, and then eventually, it's a it's a really sort of weird one that I'm going to say, but I was in ASDA and uh, Stephen King's Rose Red miniseries was on the shelf and it looked really scary, but it was only a 12. So I was like, I could watch this, say that I've watched a scary film, but actually it's only a 12, so it can't be that scary. But it actually was really scary. Um, <laughs> and I still do love it, actually. And that is sort of what got me hooked. And then everything with Stephen King's name on it is then where I started finding all this horror. So, you know, not a bad route into discovering and loving horror movies. So just I watched every Stephen King adaptation. And do you read Stephen King as well, or is it just um, the films? Well, actually, at that time, I, was, I, I read a lot, and I started reading Stephen King, but uh, I found his books, they were so long, and for me, at age, whatever, 13 or something, it was too much, so I actually stopped reading because of Stephen King. So. <laughs> <laughs> That's incredible. But you, you must have dipped into Lovecraft, what, with your passion for fish monsters? No, that, that's actually a more recent thing, is, is when I was shooting The Barge People, um, in fact, when I even read the script, in the, in the original script, they weren't fish monsters at all. And, I, and because it was set on the canal, I was like, if this was fish monsters, I would love this film. I would definitely want to do it. So that was the one change that we made, like the major change to the script. Um, was to do fish monsters. And then people started saying, oh, Lovecraft and, you know, Innsmouth and all this stuff. And I was like, what does this even mean? Like, <laughs> what, what does it mean to be Lovecraftian uh, with all this stuff? So then I looked into it. Then I read Shadow Over Innsmouth. And now I'm a huge Lovecraft fan. But I think I always loved Fishmen without really realizing the whole Lovecraft thing. So... And uh, tell us about your first short. How old were you when you made it and what sort of lessons did you learn from it at that early stage? Um, well, when I, so I mean, I guess like anyone starting out as a teenager trying to just get your friends together and make something, I'd watched Reservoir Dogs and I was just instantly inspired. You know, I needed to make something right now. So I wrote this sort of crime film and uh, got my friends together. There were like 30 of us. Uh, and just made, tried to make, I think it was like a 50-page script, and I was trying to shoot it over a weekend, and it was a complete disaster. Um, but then eventually, after like a few months of, on, on weekends, trying to get that film going, and it was just a disaster, uh, I just sort of stripped it down and made it far more simple, a whole totally different idea, and then shot something... Uh, that was a much more simple film over two days. Um, and still, even now, I feel like every film I do, I look back at it and I go, oh, that, that needed to be stripped down to be more simple, you know, because uh, uh, I just think that's, that's the way that things work with simplicity. Um, so that was the main thing I learned, was just, uh, just not trying to cram too many ideas into that first thing, so yeah. And, and what is it about simplicity that works so well for you? That's interesting. Um, I just think I just think generally in films like uh, when I when I come to like direct a scene I look I look at the shots that I'm gonna get and I think you know the fewer shots it almost always seems better with fewer shots and if you could do it in one shot you know that, that's even better I just there's something cinematic about simplicity and just keeping it as simple as possible at every single stage it's just clear to the viewer you know what you're doing uh, and just the whole style you know yeah. 
And I think a lot of people are kind of uh, intimidated by filmmaking. I think there's a lot of people who would like to do what you've done. What would you say to them to, you know, maybe give them that confidence? Uh, you just have to, you basically just have to make it and not care what anybody's uh, going to think about it. Just, you know, go out there and make what you want to do. Don't think about it too much. I hear always people like procrastinating because they've got this, this script that, oh, you know, this is such a good idea and I'm, I'm going to spend a year, you know, making it really interesting and long and complicated. But, I mean, it, that does work for some people. And, and, okay, some of my films, yeah, I've, it's taken like a long time for it to come together. But actually, I think you've just got to go out and do it now, you know. If you can't come up with the idea now on the spot uh, and make it what you want it to be, then... You know why wait? Why wait a year for it to finally sort of come out of nowhere? You know I think with filmmaking, just go out there and do it. You learn. You realize that idea was not that great an idea. I just think with every film you make, uh, you're you're going to progress massively and learn a lot of things. So why wait? You know, just crack on with it. This is it because you did go to film school, didn't you? Mm -hmm. And um, what was that experience like for you? Uh, well, I don't. I actually don't recommend film school to anyone. Um, I just found that I was just constantly, not in argument with the teachers and stuff, but I mean, I mean, certainly horror, they didn't like horror there. They didn't want you making genre movies. Um, I'd written a short and you had to submit your script actually to get, just to be able to hire the equipment and the space at Elin Studios to, to shoot the movie. And I submitted a short film and got called into the office like a week before shooting it. And the teacher just said to me, you know, she said, what, is, what do you think this film is about? And I explained, you know, it's about this guy goes to a nightclub, the, the strippers there, they've been, you know, infected with alien eggs and they rip them out their chest and then, you know, they're possessed. She was like, no, it's a film about hating women. And then started going on about the violence and said, you need to cut out the sex, cut out the violence. But, you know, it was, the, it was always that sort of environment at film school. They didn't want you to make those types of movies, you know. You did have one special tutor, though, didn't you? Uh, I did. The, the tutor who I liked the most there was a guy called Robin Vigeon, who was the cinematographer on Hellraiser and Hellraiser 2 and, and lots of other films. And he was kind of like a legend there. And he'd just come into school and just be like, come on, guys, let's, let's just sneak off to Pinewood for the day. And then he'd just take a few of us off to Pinewood in his car and just show us around and introduce us to people there. Um, so yeah, he he was really cool. There were some really great teachers, and then there were some that were psychotic. So, yeah. <laughs> and um, you know, everyone here is supporting indie horror. Um, mm -hmm. You're at a festival, you're at Fright Fest, um, and obviously Fright Fest is amazing for for young directors. Like, yeah. um, get exposure, you get on the world stage. It really puts your name out there. Um, but what are some other ways that um, people maybe listening at home can support um, directors like you? Just basically by tracking down the films, buying the films, you know, it's really difficult for uh, indie horror to get distribution at all uh, these days. So, if you, if you, you know, if you see a film at the festival and you really love it, don't just say, you know, oh great, that you know, I saw it at the festival. I don't need to get it on DVD. Uh, you know, make sure you go and find the website, buy the DVD, buy the poster. Make sure you're supporting the filmmaker because, you know, I was saying yesterday. Probably all of us from the films we've seen so far are going to go and buy Cruel because it's going to be in Tesco's for five pounds, and, and at some point we'll buy that. But you know, I don't know where Bliss will come out, but you need to go 
to HMV and get that on Blu-ray or whatever because, you know, you've got to support those indie filmmakers if you want to see more of that type of thing. I mean, Cruel was amazing, but the interesting horror stuff actually is the indie stuff these days. You know, unless it's the Conjuring Universe or uh, the Stephen King adaptations, which are both good fun, you know, you're not getting the cool, gory horror that a lot of us grew up loving uh, in the mainstream anymore. So you have to go and support the indies, yeah. And uh, just on that point before I wrap up, talking about the sort of uh, aesthetic of, of the, the films we grew up on, mm-hmm. obviously you're very influenced by VHS and VHS culture. Mm-hmm. Um, I almost said that right. Could you talk about that, please, Charlie? Like your influences and you know, yeah, how well, it impacted I mean, on barge people. Yeah, I mean, so many, so many horror films I watch these days, like uh, Ant was saying about mobile phones and stuff, it's like you turn it on, it's, it's these modern houses, they're all brightly lit, everything's sort of picture perfect, there's mobile phones, laptops... And it, it just doesn't feel like that sort of gritty horror. It, to me, it just doesn't actually feel scary anymore. You know? And I think the filmmakers nowadays, you have to make the extra effort to take people into a world of horror that is you know, scary. And obviously, I, you know, I grew up on a lot of these old 80s VHS movies. And so uh, you know, I, I like to, in my films, keep that aesthetic of you know, these colors and smoke and making it look slightly retro. Um, so yeah great Dan do you have anything to contribute just to ask about deep cuts and arrow films (laughs) (laughs) oh yeah because I'll never forget that (laughs) super professional right well I don't know about a deep cut but uh, basically the other night uh, was a couple of months ago I watched two arrow movies uh, on two consecutive nights and they both are like instantly in my top 10 Italian horror movies and that was don't torture a duckling one night, and then uh, the case of the scorpion's tail the second night. Um, and you know it's so rare that you actually you, you know you have to look through a lot of these movies to actually find the ones that really stand out to you. And those both those movies, just the atmosphere, the the gore, just everything about them, they're both awesome movies. So yeah, that's my picks. They're good. They're good films. <laughs> Thank you very much, Charlie. Thank you, Charlie. Thank you. Thank you. Our next guest is Abigail Blackmore, uh, director of Tales from the Lodge. Please, yeah, come, come join us. Come join us. Thank you. Hello. 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 The, the, the microphones are more for the for the recording than the. Although I feel like mine's louder. Yeah, I can't. Can it you is. hear me? Is this on? It's it's definitely on. Can my brother hear me? Joe, shout. Hey. Okay. All good. <laughs> Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Tales from the Lodge is sort of a portmanteau, but not a portmanteau. It's an interesting structure for a film. It's a debut for you yes. as a feature. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the the seed of the idea and how that film came to be the one you made? Um, yeah, it is a bit of a weird portmanteau. I mean, I originally thought it'd be quite nice to market it as just a regular film and then have it as a surprise. And a lot of people who have seen it um, who didn't know that it was a portmanteau thought, Oh, this is interesting. Oh, oh, this is interesting. Oh, now I see what's happening. And um, because basically the framework story just really got out of hand. And so it's just like about 70% of the movie. But originally um, I, wanted, I pitched a feature idea to a TV company and it was, one at the f- it was the demon story. Obviously we haven't screened yet. We're screening on Monday. So 
Um, nobody knows what I'm talking about. But uh, the demon story was originally going to be a feature. I tried to write it and thought, no, actually, this is more of a short. And, and that gave me the idea to maybe, because I'd always wanted to write a portmanteau because I like them. And so I thought, OK, well, maybe that can be one story. And then I built it around that. So that was the first story. And then I thought, well, OK, we need people to tell stories. And then it just all built from there, really. Um, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> the, um, the, the format is, is interesting because it, it has that portmanteau aspect of allowing the different directors, different people to take charge of the different bits, which gives it a really nice, unique sort of like feel with it all grounded around the same characters. Again, was that always the plan to, to, to invite the performers to, to take the, the yeah, charge? Yeah, so I don't know if people know this, but the actors actually directed their own short story within the film. I mean, I was their wingman, definitely. Um, but originally, when I wrote it, I thought, well, we will, in tradition of portmanteaus, you will get a separate, a different director for each story. So then I was thinking, oh, Ben Wheatley, you know, people like that. But when our, our producer came on board, um, he's, I don't know how, who came up with the idea, but I'd already spoken to Mackenzie Crook, because our kids came through school together, so I knew him from the playground. So I approached him and said, I've written a part for you, and would you be interested in directing a bit? So as soon as he said yes to that, we thought, okay, well, maybe we should cast actors who also want to direct. And it's actually a cheeky way of getting a really good cast as well, because you're giving them an opportunity they don't usually get. So, yeah, we got Johnny Vegas. I mean, re I mean such a low-budget film, so uh, it, just, it just gave us more to offer. It looked really good. For you know, you say it's a really low budget. It doesn't look like a low budget right. film. Yeah. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about the cast and the order that they came? Obviously, you say you've got Mackenzie first. But yeah, Mackenzie signed on. He was on board for about two years, and um, Johnny Vegas was on board for about a year um, because we originally thought we were going to shoot in 2016, and we even put money down on the location, but we it fell through, and then so we shot a year later. Um, and casting Martha, who is played by Laura Fraser. Um, I don't really know how to talk about casting, actually, because I don't want to say they're not first choices because they are perfect for the roles. Um, but casting is so difficult and it takes so long because you can only approach one actor for each role at a time and then you've got to wait for them to get back to you. So they can take a long time. Um, so you're constantly going, OK, well, we'll send out to them and hopefully they'll read it within the next couple of weeks. And when we sent it to Laura Fraser, her agent said she's never shown any interest in directing probably going to be a no but let's see and straight away she was like yes please <laughs> she's so great she's she's one of these people that is just up for challenges and is excited about life and things and um so that was brilliant and then when we had our first lunch together she'd printed the script out and had it all bound and it was just full of notes and she's very very precise one of the hardest workers i've ever met um, and during the shoot, when we were all going back in the van and everybody's nodding off, she was with her phone torch, like, learning her lines for the next day. It's just insane. Um, so, Laura, yes, yeah, so back to casting. Sophie Thompson was in my short film, Vintage Blood, and she's local to me in North London. And so she came on board. And who else have we got? De Dustin Demery Burns from Cardinal Burns, an amazing actor-comedian. And Kelly Wenham who 
plays a really tough chick in Double Dates, which is coming out on the 9th of September, I think, on DVD. Nice. Uh, <laughs> nice plug for them. I was in that film, but I was cut out. Uh, hopefully I'll be in special features. Um, so that's the main cast. But yeah, it was, it was hard because they're supposed to be old friends. So you've got to get people who are around the same age... Um, who were available, <laughs> willing to work for the money we're offering. Um, and, yeah, so it was tough, but eventually we got them. But some people, no, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> um, Sam, do you want to ask anything? Cut that bit. Um, yeah, I, I just, uh, the style is so coherent. Like, obviously everything has its own tone and all the rest of it, um, but it feels like a very complete, film was that uh, a challenge um how did you kind of approach that well that we always thought that each story there's a five separate stories and each one is a different subgenre of horror so we always thought each one should have its own feel and look and should look different from the others but it had to i had to make sure that there was a consistency in quality exactly and, uh, keep the film as one whole thing as you say so that's great um, which is why I was there standing next to them throughout there. And, and the directing, their direct. So we shot for four weeks. Uh, the first three weeks were in the lodge, the main story, and the fourth week was basically the actors directing their... It was crazy, really. So one day we had three different... We were shooting, you know, scenes from three different shorts. Um, but I, I don't know, all, all, you know, respect to the first AD for managing to schedule it. Um, but I was I was there as if as if I was directing, but I was standing back and basically going, yeah, that's not actually in the script, is it? <laughs> We're not supposed to go there, are we? Just no, he's he's not he's not that drunk. <laughs> bring it bring it back. A lot of bring it back, but um, no, not really. But so, some people wanted more help than others. You know, so Mackenzie, although he's got a couple of BAFTAs, he was still like, Abby, have you got any ideas or what do you think this shot looks like or whatever? You know. Uh, Johnny was fun. He was. We had a good feisty relationship. Uh, it was good. Um, so yeah, I was definitely on board trying to keep them to the script. That's great. Sure. Thank you. And should we do our recommendations? Yes, please. Yes. Oh God, I didn't know about this. Uh oh. Okay. Deep, it's not a deep cut, but I was just uh, geeking out to Anne about Housebound, which is I don't know. I mean. Most people in this room will have seen it, but not most people in the world, and they need to, because it's hilarious and brilliant. Um, so seek that out. Arrow-wise, can you just list every um, release? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, um, um, look, um, the first thing that came to mind was Vamp. Is that an Arrow release? That sounds like yeah, an Arrow release. It, 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 yeah, yeah, Vamp. Pre-Us. Um, I, I like that film because it's really seedy, but so atmospheric and um, creepy. Um, Hello, Paul. Hello. Paul's just arrived. Paul's coming now. I, I was just going to say, because I'm, I'm doing Ant for Fightfest TV, no, there is no hurry. Oh, so oh. as long as we go within 20 minutes maximum. <laughs> this is good, this is good radio. He has already gone up. The curtain. Oh, right. Yeah, Ant's, oh, okay. Ant is... So we'll, we'll go whenever you're ready. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry to this is you know, Mike, podcasting. Mike can earn his, earn his editor fee. <laughs> Thank you, Anne. Please keep that in, please. Uh, so, yeah, vamp. Sorry. I mean. <laughs> uh, amazing choice. Thank um, you so much. Yeah. Um, tell us again when it's screening. Oh, yeah, Monday, 3 o'clock, main, 
and 3 p.m. 3 p.m. and 3.30 p.m. Amazing. Go check Wonderful. it out. Thank, Thank you so much. so much. Thank you. Oh, no. It's my turn again. <laughs> Could we please uh, bring to the stage uh, a true rock star, producer, genius, friend, wonderful person, Heather Buckley. Please join us. How are you doing, Heather? I'm doing awesome. Yes, always, always. It's partly your fault I'm like this. You wanted to stay out late, you know, from New York City. We literally, our bars close at 4, and then you go to the diner, and then you get home at 7. Yes. You got to train harder, Sam. Yes, I, <laughs> I slept on Heather's floor for an hour today. So good. Um, but enough about me. I was, saying, I was able to wake up and do my eyeliner for all you people. Come on. Yeah, man, you look the cool. Hair. Okay, so. Tell me. You are here for many reasons, but the, perhaps the main one is you produced an incredible documentary about Al Adamson. Yes. Uh, I struggle with that name for some reason. Uh, yeah, tell us about how that all came together on the producing side. All right, so about three and a half years ago, David Gregory from Seven Films reaches out to me. And he's already had about seven interviews shot. On, and this, there's this, this giant spreadsheet. There's about 100 names on it. And the 100 names were sort of the, the actors and the um, crew people that he all worked with. And he goes like, Heather... You want to help? You want to produce this doc for me? And it, when, I love David. We've been friends for so yes. I mean, I've done extras for him. He's a very close friend, so I was very honored that he reached out. And because of you know Al Adamson and the era that he's in, it's not something that you can go on IMDb Pro for. So we went sort of very deep to find all those people. And I go like David. When you want me to stop finding people because we just we had we had so many, and then we sort of moved. We sort of. Yeah, he always wanted to sort of talk about the, the murder, but like doing that second part of it, doing the true crime producing was incredibly intense because, you know, there's one thing to do beautiful extras for Arrow and things like that. But the idea we'll of like... We'll get to that. Yes, but the, the idea of um, going into figuring out how to get evidence, how to reach out to judges, how to reach out, you know, working with a private detective, hiring them, super noir stuff, how to go through, the, like, the uh, the California penal system to get to uh, uh, the uh, Mr. Fred Fulford. It was, uh, it, was, it was, I've never, and I, and I, you know, I produced The Ranger, but the three and a half, it was so... Yeah, I mean, just to, to give a little bit of backstory in this documentary, um, it is about a, a filmmaker and kind of the, the first half of that is kind of weirdly inspirational, right, Dan? We watched it together. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of a beautiful story. And then it does go into this true crime section. And uh, I, I was aware of the story before, but the fact that you got that interview with the... Well, I don't want to spoil it too much. Um, I've just spoiled it massively. But there's a very important interview that takes place in this documentary, and you should all see it. I don't it. think any other documentary has stories about the, uh, the, the, you know, the director, the talent, and then also an interview with the person that killed him. Exactly, and that's a reason to see it. And um, you mentioned the extras that, that you do for Arrow and, and for other places. Um, you have interviewed some incredible people, Abel Ferrara, um, who's who's not for Arrow, but um, uh, King of New York is is on Arrow. Um, can you talk a little bit about what that experience was like? Because obviously, he is a bit of a character. All right. So, um, as 
I do beautiful stuff for Arrow, Shout Factory, Kino Lober, Severn Films, and uh, I think Vinegar Syndrome are all the sort of uh, labels that I work, work for. And I, uh, I, I recently, I, I, one of my most I, like proudest sort of interviews is that I knew that Kino Lober had Pasolini, and they were doing an outside, and I originally asked uh, Frank, who's my contact there, who is, who is he does all sort of the uh, these acquisitions. It's like, can I just do the Q and A at the Metrograph with like Abel Farr and Willem? And then it turned into like, why don't you do the extras? So I was able to set up a beautiful three camera interview with uh, Willem and Abel talking about Pasolini as the person who they're very inspired by, and then uh, Pasolini as you know the, the the production and making it and working with the family, and it was just beautiful and intense. But the idea is like his work means so much to me. A lot of those filmmakers are during the 70s because I'm from Jersey. Uh, so that whole tri-state area, it's like, it's, it's like the crime, the cynicism, the nihilism, the patois of the rhythm that I speak, like, a, like, I'm, like noir text. Is all the, uh, and, you know, just growing up with, with how, my, how my father sort of was and the people in my family. So Abel's always meant a lot to me. That's lovely. And um, <clears throat> we've completely forgotten about the theme of um, film fan to filmmaker, yep. but I'm going to bring it right back. Um, what sort of message, if you could speak directly to um, a young outsider who wants to make films, um, what would you say to that person? Achieve and be brilliant out of spite because people told you you couldn't do it. Yes. I love it. And um, Dan, would you like to ask any questions? Um, yeah, I'd like the... Uh, the documentary is uh, because of those two halves. It's kind of unique, I think. And there's also there's also some Charles Manson in there as well. Yeah. And Joe Franklin. Ch Charles Manson, who is back back in the headlines for recent films. Well, I, th well, I think uh, uh, Quentin Tarantino's film is like I think it was inspired by, of course, like the the stunt guys on the stunt ranch and Manson. So it does, oddly enough, that they came out at this at the same time. And I know it was in time by David that the two films would be out like right now. Mm. I was I was shocked when it was like finally edited because it was three and a half years and gone through many editing processes. Uh, um, Mike Capone is uh, actually uh, edited the, uh, the the doc was one of the main editors. You know he's worked with Jim Van Beber a lot on stuff. Really? Yep. And he's he was he was wonderful. The stuff that he put his. His interviews. He was at Fantasia with David and I, and it's just his thoughts on how he put it put it together with him was uh, was pretty brilliant. Because editing docs and also like editing the the extras, it's like narrative is fine because you have you're following a path and you can get the certain scenes. But even doing like extras producing and putting notes and like you need more time between these thoughts and this dialogue and and, and building all that in in the, in the post. Even like for our little things, like like for instance, like the care that we took with the uh, Clive Barker interview on the on the Candy Candyman disc. It just, it's anyone who edits long form docs. It's, it's amazing. That kind of mindset to build a narrative out of all these out of like hours. Because think about it, if you're sitting with someone that's like one hour, and if you have about like, you know, 20 interviews or more, and trying to find that narrative in there, it's just, it's just doc editors are incredible to me. Uh, the was the, the the two halves format, that's sort of the, the two linear sections of the documentary, always how you're going to approach it, or did that come in edit? Well, I think that would be more of a more of a David question because what I did was that I, I, I sat I reached out to people I pitched them I got everything set up and it was David and actually uh, Jim Coons who shoots a lot of stuff for you know shoots a lot of stuff for hours shoots a lot of stuff you know I work with him all the time he's out in, he's out in L A 
so I don't... I know we always wanted to have the true crime section, but the format that it was going to take, like, I didn't know. The best thing was is that when I went out to do sort of the true crime parts, it's like I, I did not have access to the footage, so I did not know what they were building. So the first time that I actually watched the, the cut, because I didn't do the post on this, was at Fantasia. I didn't know what any, like, the cops looked like. Because you can't find them online. I had a, we had to find them by uh, by hiring uh, Enrique, who's in the in the dock. Like we had to hire him as a private detective to find the other detectives or what Lupe looked like. I had no idea. That's awesome. Um, we're gonna we're gonna ask you the the same ending question that we've been asking everyone. Can you recommend a, a, a film you don't think gets enough attention? Oh my God, it's my favorite film to recommend to all you folks out there, and that would be the Ninth Configuration. Yes. <laughs> so everyone out there, so when I was uh, 14 years old, I was in the uh, in the store, one of the video stores in the Jers, and uh, everyone like people. I think I think most of the the, the Bible text would be sort of like tr psychotronic film guide. For me, it was Phantom of the Movie Guide and I would just go through it and like I have no idea why a 14 year old girl would go I want to watch the ninth configuration based on the character actor cast but I think during that time period like I was watching movies like Dirty Dozen and Kelly's Heroes and I think I knew subconsciously what I love to watch like ensemble character actors say really cool dialogue and I watched it and the, the philosophical approach to the film the discussion of God and atheism Joe Spinell all those things I just I love I love deeply. I recently had a, a script come to my to my slate, and when we were in development, I said like you guys have to watch Ninth Configuration or even Exorcist Three because they're very uh, they're very similar in, in cast, and it's both William Peter Blatty directing. And this is it, what I love is it might it's like. I'm very attracted to philosophical literature like Sartre and Camus and things like that. So the idea of taking philosophy and putting in a narrative form, like even like movies like Naked, like I cannot get enough of just people talking and talking about the world and what they see. So Thank you. So Ninth Configuration. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah, and your Arrow choice? Oh, that w just because the care that Arrow took for such a transgressive film, it must be uh, necromantic. Because that you would do like this gorgeous box set with these images and booklets, and you would have such care for a corpse fucking movie. <laughs> it means so much to me. <laughs> now I'm more of a fan of the, of the of the of the of the second one, like as a as a cinematic experience. But uh, but but that but but the Arrow disc itself, the package. That's the number one. That's the OG. I'm gonna go with that. Nice. Thank Love you so it. much. Thank you so much, Heather. That was great. Thank you. It's our last interview. It's our last interview. How are we doing for time? Are we okay? We've got loads of time. Amazing. Oh. Well, we can... We've got 10 minutes. Oh! This. No, Mike was like, that means... Both hands up means you've got two minutes. <laughs> can we also include this conversation? Um, Brilliant. <laughs> right, well, should we... It's all good. Um, uh, please join us on stage, Rob Grant, uh, director of Harpoon. <laughs> yes. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks for joining us, man. Uh, it played fantastically last night. Oh, Congratulations. Oh, that's great to hear. I'm not able to sit in it due to extreme anxiety, uh, but oh. it's awesome to hear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It went down really, really well. Oh, fantastic. So uh, you've directed quite a few features, and you've been working in film for a long time. Uh, yeah, I mean, not all of them good. 
but that's not really the... That's the path? That's not, the, yeah, not the point sometimes. So how did Harpoon come about? Uh, frustration. Um, you know, I think when you're making movies and, you know, for better or worse, you're not sure if you're going to get a chance to do another one, especially if you're okay with experimenting. You also got to be okay with people going, well, I don't want to see another one from this person. <laughs> Uh, and so I was like, you know what, if this is my last kick at the can, um, I just want to try and go for broke and do all the things that I was too scared to try before because I was worried about what audience members would think about certain elements or if I could pull it off. Uh, and so I wrote this script and my fears were realized when the first uh, financier we sent it to said this was an unsellable, unmakeable movie. <laughs> and that only made me want to make it more. <laughs> uh, and that's kind of how it started. And then... You know, friendship and betrayal, I just feel like I had more to say about that. Uh, I think everyone has, also has, uh, can connect with either, either friendship or betrayal on some level, and so that kind of was my, my in. Nice. Uh, the film takes place almost entirely on a boat. Was, was that an absolute nightmare? No, it was, a, it was a, a pleasure, actually. And now, I, like I said, I now know why Adam Sandler's, all of his recent movies are all tropical destinations. <laughs> it seems like a good cheat. Uh, no, it was like... It, you know, I, everyone always asks, you know, it's cool when your movie has this crazy story about how hard it was to make, but I had such a wonderful crew and cast, it was, we made a day up on a 15-day schedule on an indie, which just doesn't happen, <laughs> and so I, I'm always like, I'm sorry, it, it went really well. Uh, 24-hour rap party. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, the last, with the cameo of us playing the flashbacks, I don't want to, oh, whatever, I'll ruin it, I don't care, there's that, Richard Parker is an actual uh, maroon ship story and we do a cameo of that and we did that on our last day in Belize uh, and there was a lot of Mai Tais behind the camera on that one so <laughs> yeah. yeah that's I mean if that's the last time I get a chance to make a movie that's not the, not a bad way to go out either so <laughs> <laughs> um, your yeah, your day job is you, you edit you're an editor mm -hmm. um, and you've worked on some pretty big titles do you how much crossover in your life is there between those two worlds? Are you able to sort of borrow people? I know obviously you're not on set as much with the editing. Um, no, I mean in the... I, I, was just, I sit in it... Oh God, sorry, I'm also hungover. And, <laughs> uh, Thank you. Yeah. And I don't know if it's that or the jet lag, but I assistant edit on um, some of the big Hollywood movies that come up to Vancouver because it's cheaper for tax credits and stuff like that. But uh, it'd be very unprofessional of me to also then go to Matt Reeves on Planet Apes and be like, hey, you want to help me with <laughs> my little indie? And so uh, the worlds stay very separate. In fact, most of the people don't know that I'll go off uh, and shoot stuff on, on my own time. And the reason that happened is because, you know, you work on those movies, uh, back in the day anyway, and then there'd be four or five months off before another one would come to town. And so in between that time, you and a bunch of friends would just be like, hey, let's go shoot something. And that's kind of how they fractured into these two different uh, worlds for me and it's kind of been nice that I can keep them separate actually actually it's like okay I go do one shoot a movie and then I can not think about that world for a little while and then just go work and not have the pressure of are people gonna hate the stuff that I'm putting out and stuff uh, and then I just go back and forth whenever I feel like torturing myself so. <laughs> um, we uh, in England particularly we've seen a lot of Brett Gelman recently yeah. Um, with his role in Fleabag. Uh, such a fantastic show. Yeah, and, and such a fantastic voice to have as your voiceover. Yeah. Um, how did he get attached to the project? Because John Cleese said no. <laughs> uh, no joke. Yeah, we were going after John Cleese for like four months and it just didn't work out. And then uh, Brett Gelman uh, uh, got presented to us and 
just through talking with them. Thank God John Cleese said no because I, Brett Gelman got what we were going for, and I just think his dry sense of humor. I don't know if anyone remembers his Adult Swim days where he did Brett Gelman. Brett Gelman brings his parents to dinner. It's one of the most crazy shorts you'll ever see, and it's freaking hilarious and dark, and that's kind of the, it's the tone of the movie, and yeah. so he got it. Uh, and so three days before our uh, world premiere, uh, we still hadn't recorded him, and so I had to fly down to L.A., record him, fly back, and on the flight back, edit it into the movie, put it on DCP, and the first time we saw it was on this theater in Rotterdam, and we realized that it was just sandwiched in there, and it wasn't edited to his voice, and so the whole first four screenings were not not pleasant to watch. Goodness, and so you, you went back and retooled. Yeah, we reopened yeah. the movie, much to the chagrin of my colorist and sound designers and stuff like that, but it had to be done. Um, I'm going to ask you about your credit as a shark wrangler. Yes. <laughs> Me and P.T. Butman are the, are the shark wrangler. Uh, it's the second shark wrangler credit I have, and it's because <laughs> I was working on a friend short in Vancouver at night as a, just as like a PA, and then when it came time to sign a release and what credit you want, I was like, can I put a shark wrangler? He's like, we have no sharks. So I was like, exactly. <laughs> I, I did my job. Uh, I wrangled uh, those fuckers away. Yeah, and so, and so in Harpoon, the same thing happened. We didn't have any sharks, and I just kept being like, yeah, I, I, that was me, guys. Um, and so it seemed just... You get so invested in editing and making a movie over two years, you kind of go bananas, and so you start making little inside jokes for yourself. And then other people ask you about it, and then you're like, all right, <laughs> it's getting out there. So one day I'm hoping, though, because it's on IMDb that says Shark Wrangler, I'm hoping one day an emergency, someone on set who needs a Shark Wrangler <laughs> is going to fall out, and I'm going to get to call me like, can you make the set today? And I'll be like, I'll be there. <laughs> yeah. You think you're editing. Yeah. You get there, and they're like, yeah. this guy's not... Yeah. Doing what we want. Yeah, no, I'll be like, where do you, where do you need the sharks? Because <laughs> you know, I'll tell you, there won't be here. <laughs> you know, so. um, yeah, right. <laughs> I have a question. Sam, Is it about sharks? Uh, unfortunately, not. Can you retool it? <laughs> but um, I, I, yeah, I love your movie. Um, Thank you. Congratulations. It's awesome. It has unlikable characters mm -hmm. and we're gonna this is kind of dipping into the recommendation zone but uh just wondering what some of your favorite movies that feature unlikable characters are because it's a it's a subgenre that i love yeah it's also a subgenre that a lot of people hate yes um i don't think to be and i'll say north americans i don't think do them very well to be honest we don't do the dry humor super well you guys do it much better um so like the, but the classic one that always gets talked about in North America is probably Very Bad Things. Yes. Uh, I only recently rewatched Oliver Stone's U-Turn. Um, oh, yeah. Just because someone was telling... When we were editing and people were like, I don't know about this movie. I was like, shit, did we make this inaccessible to everybody? So I had to start going back to watching bad people doing bad things movies. Um, and you kind of... Yeah. So I'll go Very Bad Things is probably where the high standard in North America. Uh, I don't know, what, what's, a, what's a high standard one over here? Um, maybe Naked, it was kind of mentioned yeah. earlier, but yeah, that's pretty hardcore, unlikable. I would recommend that to you. Yeah, I haven't seen it yet, I'm gonna have to check it out. Yes. Um, Dan, any more? Um, I know I'm running out, I'm just thinking about sharks. <laughs> 
<laughs> I've done my job. You know, right? yeah. So should we, uh, uh, your deep cut uh, recommendation and yeah. the Arrow video recommendation, please. So, um, yeah, the deep cut, I'm going to go with Friends of Eddie Coyle. Nice. Yes. Just because Robert Mitchum is crazy good in that without having to say very much, and then his speeches are wild. And I only recently discovered that uh, film through Criterion, and I always like to say that Arrow is the European Criterion channel for, for, for us North Americans. And so uh, my Arrow one's going to be a recent one, and it's because uh, when I got the Arrow Blu-ray for The Endless, it made me realize that the art of special features are coming back in a big way, thank yeah. God, because with streaming, they kind of disappeared. And I've always wondered why, why like Netflix and stuff won't give you director's commentary tracks and stuff. Um, and so it was just really refreshing to see, uh, see a whole whack of uh, special features on the endless uh, release that I really appreciated. And it's, that's kind of how I learned to make movies, or at least figured out how other people pulled off their projects. And so that's the stuff that I kind of really enjoy, sometimes more than the movie. It's also good to fall asleep to a director's commentary. Just let it seep in. Yeah. I, no, no. I just, yeah, it's soothing. Yeah. I can't fall asleep with silence and the demons crawl in there. <laughs> the sharks. When the sharks come back. Yeah, so, um, yeah and, and Harpoon is uh, coming to Arrow Video, isn't it? Uh, yeah. Have you thought about the extras? Have you done a director's commentary yet? Or? I th had to do an extra one recently, and I'm so sick of the movie that I took psychedelic mushrooms. And, and so it's called the Psychedelic Director's Commentary Track. Please, please tell me that's true. I'm not joking. Yes. Uh, yeah. I pressed record, took some Philosopher's Stone magic mushrooms, and then said, I don't know when these are going to kick in, and I have not listened to the track since. <laughs> <laughs> I, up, I uploaded it directly and said, here you go. <laughs> Man, if, if people weren't already going to get the film so, after our conversation about I don't know whether getting, it, a, I, getting a disc for the extras. Yeah, I don't know whether it gets deeply philosoph philosophical or it's silence for <laughs> 81 minutes. So we'll find out. <laughs> That's uh, fucking amazing. great. Yeah. Right, let's end on that. Yeah, thank, thank you, you so, so much. much. <laughs> thank you, man. Thank you. Oh, you're very sweaty. Yeah. So uh, should we do a tiny bit of waffling? Yeah, um, I and mean, we've got some stuff to give away as well. We've we got stuff to give away and something to announce. Have we? Yeah. We yes. Oh, I God, knew, I know about me? this. <laughs> <laughs> Not today. Um, <laughs> So yes, uh, very exciting news, uh, a future Arrow video release, which is going to be announced officially next Friday, but we're allowed to announce it today, just for you. Have I missed an email? Uh, <laughs> very likely. Um, uh, Arrow video are going to be releasing an incredible Robocop uh, oh, yes. release with lots of extras and, and lots of cool stuff. So that is our fancy announcement. Oh, Are you excited? We're done. I'm very excited about Robocop. It's yeah. been very difficult not to talk about it. Yes. But I didn't know we were allowed to now. <laughs> I mean, I hope we are. We're allowed to lose giving us the thumbs up, which I think means we have two minutes. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, shall we? Um, I, I, I tell you what we could do. What could we do? We could... Ask the audience if they want to ask any of the directors a question and the directors can just sort of shout it over their shoulders. That'll definitely work on our recording. We also have a microphone. A wireless microphone. That too. So, um, yes. Yeah, does, um, anyone, does anyone have a question for Rob or Abigail or Charlie and, or Ant, but he's not here? Yeah. Do you want to come over here, Sam? We'll share this one. 
Uh, I forget your name, but it's for the Harpoon director. Right. Sorry. Oh, that's okay. Um, it's my favourite of the festival so far. It was fucking good. Thank you. Um, I have to ask you, what's your next hol- holiday destination you're going to ruin? So you've taken us onto a boat and done horrible <laughs> things, horrible people. Where next? Um, I, good question. Um, I actually want to... I'm, I'm thinking of doing a crime thriller. That's why I was watching Friends of Eddie Quill. Um, but I want to set it in Canada, if you can believe it, where not anyone thinks there's actual crime going on there. But Vancouver, B.C. is a border town. It's just a nicer Tijuana. Um, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I wanted to, this secondhand stories you hear from, or like one step removed from weird scenarios that uh, between the gang violence and the drug violence that you have there. So I feel like I could I could ruin Cana- what people think of uh, nice Canadian towns. I think hopefully next that would be that'd be the goal. <laughs> There you go, harpoon poster. Um, does anyone have a question? Uh, let's. Oh, thank you, Sam. Hello. Um, my question is for Charlie. Um, obviously, being so um, young, which I think is fantastic. Yeah. Um, what kind of hurdles did you come up against, like being so young? Because I can imagine you had some, surely. Um, that's an interesting question. I mean, usually it's, uh, when you get on set and you've got your actors, uh, just the fact that there's like a 22 year old or whatever, like there in front of these actors who are in their fifties or sixties or seventies, you know, it, it takes quite a lot for them to actually, you know, take you seriously and, and not just think, especially when it's indie as well and you, things are going to go wrong, you know, it, it, I, I think if I was in my 50s and something went horribly wrong as they do on most sets, you know, they, they would cut me more slack uh, but they think, oh, you know, this young guy, so, that, so there's that, there's getting the actors on your side and uh, in the past there have been actors who have left my sets and I think they've kind of been hating me and thinking, you know, what is this shit that we've just made? <laughs> and then when they've come to the screening and watched it, suddenly they're my best friend. And then they're at every screening because, you know, they had no idea that that's actually what was uh, happening. You know, that actually something competent was being made from it. Um, in terms of people funding your movies, I've actually been really surprised that people tend to go after, or the people I've been dealing with tend to go after younger people because I think maybe they think we're stupider. So they're like, you know, oh, we can give this guy not much money and he'll go off and do this for us. And because he's, you know, under 25, you know, we'll get away with it. And uh, so I actually know a lot of other filmmakers who are young doing the same thing. And it's kind of like, uh, I guess we're, we, we don't ask for more money. So they, they're happy to, you know, take advantage of us. But that's a good thing. That's how I've been prolific, you know. Good on you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Uh, anyone, uh, one at the back, in the middle. It's all right. I won't need the mic. I can bellow. <laughs> <laughs> can you hear me all right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, got a question for um, Abigail. male-dominated one, and as a uh, director who has, in, in the context of your own film, you had, multi- you had different directors in their own sections, do you think there's a noticeable difference in the directorial approach? Is it very individual, or do you think there is a distinctive, consistent um, gender differentiation between male and female directors? Thank you. 
Interesting. Um, Style-wise, confidence-wise, or, I mean... All of the above. Yeah. Um, I would say two of the female actors in the film, probably Sophie Thompson, who doesn't actually direct a story, but she directs a scene, um, because I didn't want her to be left out. She wasn't sure about directing. Kelly Wenham really wasn't sure about directing, and I really had to talk her into it. Laura Fraser had never done anything in her life, as far as directing goes. But across the board, male, female, as soon as they had those directing headphones on and their monitor, they were just on it and very focused. They'd all done their prep. So um, they all had different styles. I mean, Dustin was very loose and very happy to kind of let me take a bit more control. Um, Johnny had very, very strong ideas. And so I battled him on a few of those, but that's just, you know, that's his style. And that was kind of the feisty fun we had. But, um, and Mackenzie was very prepared. But Mackenzie, Johnny and Dustin, weirdly, the guys all starred in their shorts and the women didn't. And that was just coincidence because I wrote the script. So, you know, um, yeah, I don't think so. I think it was just, I've lost you. There you are. Um, it was just... They were all ended up as soon as yeah, it just seemed to they they clicked in and I mean I'm I don't feel like a female filmmaker I just obviously just feel like a female filmmaker but um, so it's hard for me to say um, I mean I was having my own issues of confidence and am I doing okay as a first time filmmaker are the crew going to respect me because I'm female and I'm first and it's my first film and they're much more experienced than me but actually it helps so much to have you want to surround yourself by people who know what they're doing um, and then you can say look I don't really know what, what happens here <laughs> just tell me if I'm doing anything wrong um, so I hope that answers your question yep, cheers thank you. Uh, another one at the back if we can get the mic over. Thank you. Cheers, thank you. Uh, it's another uh, follow-up question, actually, for Abigail there, because I'm just curious. It's an unusual situation uh, to be dealing with a, a lot of first-time directors on a film like that. Um, did you talk, how did you talk them through it? Did you give them advice? Uh, I'm just curious about how that came about, or how that actually worked, rather. How it worked? Yeah. Well, obviously, when we invited them to play the roles... We obviously said, would you play this role and would you direct this short? So some took more convincing than others. Mm -hmm. So I, 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 you know, I, I reassured them that I'd be holding their hand the whole way. Don't worry, it'll all work out. It'll be fine. We don't know how we're going to do it yet, but it will, it will, it will work out. Um, and um, sorry, what was the rest of the... I mean, on a kind of, was there much in terms of the practical advice or anything like that? Kind of, um, did well, you... Well, you know what? I think because we shot the... I was the main director for the first three weeks. Mm -hmm. I wonder if they were just like a being, you know, observing, probably taking it from me and seeing how I struggled and going, well, I'm not doing that. Uh, <laughs> and that might have given them a bit more confidence probably because I was new to it as well. And we did talk about it, but... So we'd got into a rhythm by the time the actors were directing, the crew were in a rhythm. We knew that we'd block a scene. The crew would, you know, we'd say, this is the scene we're doing next. The crew would leave, the actors would get to rehearse, the crew would come in, we'd show the crew what we'd rehearsed, and then the actors would leave, and then the, you know, the crew would set up, and then we'd shoot. And that happened. It took a little bit of time to kind of get into that rhythm, but once we were there, we all understood what we were doing, so that was good. And next film, hopefully, I'll start the film doing that. We, you <laughs> understand, because at first, um, I think the actors didn't feel like 
because it's such a low budget, we didn't have any rehearsal time, and it's it's an ensemble movie. It's like a it's a gang movie, and it would have been great to have some time for them all to kind of get loose with each other. Um, so, the the that quick rehearsal time became really um, important and um, helped everyone relax. That I went off track a bit there. But no, no, that's cool. Thank you. <laughs> Cheers. Thank you. Uh, over this side, if we can run the mic round, if that's okay. Hi. Uh, this is one for my sister, Abby Blamall, over there. <laughs> so I'm going to really piss you off now. Um, because I'm always the last to know in the owe family. I don't you any money. <laughs> no, we'll talk about that later. Because um, I'm always the last to know, and everyone else knows before me, and uh, that's usually what happens. I'm going to jump ahead yes, and ask, what's your next film? What's my next film? Yeah. Thanks, Joe. That's a good no, question. Right. Um, I wish I knew. <laughs> uh, I'm writing a new script, and um, I've pitched the script to a lot of people. Now I've got to write it. Um, it's a scary way to go about things. I know it's kind of ordinary in the business, but people expect—you know—people expecting stuff from you creatively is scary. Um, so just trying to finish that. Really, I think we could make another one at this budget, but obviously it'd be nice to get a bit more money next time. I've got TV script out there that's doing the rounds. Uh, it's a teen drama, and um, I've got a an incest coming of age comedy script out there doing the rounds. I don't <laughs> think anyone's ever going to make it. Um, that's it. Yes, who knows? All right, Open thanks. to offers. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, Another one up here around the back. Sorry to make you keep doing laps. Thank you. Um, so you guys have all said what your favourite title is from um, the Arrow catalogue. I was wondering if there are any titles which would be on your wish list for Arrow to release in the future. I, I'll go first if that's all right because I've badgered the hell out of them for this. But I want someone to. I need someone to do the 4K restoration of City of God really badly because you can only find that on DVD on like. 480p or whatever quality and so I also think Arrow would do a great job so City of God is mine <laughs> uh, Arrow have put out a lot of Jack Hill movies but I would love for them to put out the big dollhouse and the big bird cage as like an amazing elaborate box set because I just absolutely love those two movies so yeah that's my top choice I don't know if you guys can, can, can do it but it would be really hard because of rights but I would love an Arrow version of uh, Chainsaw 3 Oh, yeah. <laughs> I believe that's the we... end of the question. Any more questions? Oh, we have one, one more question. Last question. As a now aspiring shark wrangler, <laughs> to, Rob, to Rob, what's your favorite like, type of shark movie? Uh, I mean, Jaws is obviously the classic, but I think I was really uh, on... But is it... Uh, uh, full cheese zombie where he's it's a zombie fighting a shark zombie flesh eaters yeah yeah that blew me away I was like how the hell did they do that they had a real proper shark wrangler on that one is my guess <laughs> <laughs> so that's the high watermark for shark wranglers in this industry it's been downhill ever since for us uh, I think that's us wrapping up, guys. Thank you so much to all of you for coming, and thank you so much to Anne, Charlie, Abby, Heather, and Rob uh, for being here with us for this. And Yes, oh, thank you uh, so much for listening, and we promise to be more <laughs> professional than this <laughs> next time. Thank you so much. Thank you, guys. Seriously, thank you.